This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 27, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The concept of dignity has come to take an important place in recent Supreme Court decisions. Dignity itself is an important value, but as a constitutional principle, it's at best fuzzy and at worst dangerous. So says Roger Pilon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. How did dignity come to take such a prominent place in the Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence of late? Well, we can probably thank uh, Justice Kennedy for that, at least over the recent past. In fact, if you go back and look at the uh, 1988 uh, Senate confirmation hearings for him, you'll see that he spoke of a right to human dignity. Well, that raised quite a few sharp questions, as you might expect, mostly from the Republicans. They were concerned that this might lead to the kind of judicial activism that at that point in time was a great concern of theirs. Uh, But since then, uh, he's mentioned dignity a good many times in oral argument and his opinions. Um, In fact, just last month, in oral argument in the same-sex marriage cases, he did so no fewer than five times. And not surprisingly, the lawyers for the petitioners mentioned dignity many more times. Uh, That was an obvious appeal, of course, to Kennedy since he's likely to be the swing vote in those cases. Um, But his appeal to dignity goes far back, uh, most famously probably in the 1992 Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision that reaffirmed the core of Roe v. Wade. That's where his famous sweet mystery of life passage came from that Justice Scalia has made a good deal of uh, fun over in the intervening years. Uh, Kennedy's not alone in appealing to dignity, though. Uh, Justice Sotomayor and some others do it too. In fact, just last uh, month, Jeff Rosen, uh, he's the president of the National Constitution Center. Uh, Jeff had a piece in The Atlantic noting that the word dignity has appeared in more than 900 Supreme Court opinions, going back at least to Justice Louis Brandeis, who joined the court during the progressive era. So it's been around for a while, and so have the issues and the problems that surround its use by judges. Is, is the main problem then with using dignity as a value because it is such a, a sort of a – can be considered a fuzzy concept? Uh, does it sort of uh, clash with other rights and values? Well, that's one problem and it's a major one. But it begins with the fact that no one's quite sure what dignity means. And more important for legal purposes, what does the so-called right to dignity mean in the way of obligations? If you've got a right to dignity, for example, what do I have to do to respect that right? Treat you nicely? And what does the government have to do or not do, for that matter, to satisfy your right to dignity? Take the same-sex marriage cases. Uh, Cato filed an amicus brief uh, just last month asking the court to strike down state laws that define marriage narrowly so as to exclude same-sex marriages. But we didn't apply to any right to dignity. We simply said that if the state's going to be in the business of recognizing marriage and marriage is a contract at bottom, then it's got to recognize all such contracts. It can't discriminate uh, between some contracts and others. Uh, So you see, dignity had nothing to do with that reasoning. All a judge has has or a justice has to do to apply the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to the facts before the court. The state can't discriminate. Of course, if the state refuses to recognize the marriage, the parties will probably see it as an affront to their dignity. 
But as a constitutional matter, it's the restriction of their liberty. And liberty, unlike dignity, is, is a constitutionally recognized right. So now we've gotten to the heart of the matter. Because if a state's going to restrict a person's liberty, it's got to have a good reason. And that reason has got to be rooted in some, someone else's liberty or in a state's power under its own constitution. And here the main power at issue is the state's police power. That power at its core is the power of states to protect our rights and do a few other things like provide for infrastructure. Historically, of course, the police power has also been understood as a power to protect morals, but that's been chipped away over the years. And the, a good example is the Lawrence case back in 2003. That was a challenge, you remember, to a Texas statute that criminalized uh, homosexual sodomy. The first version of that uh, statute, by the way, criminalized so sodomy as such, but then the legislators in Texas realized that it captured too, much of, too many of them, and so they narrowed it down to homosexual sodomy. Um, so to get back to the state police power question, too often it's been used by some people to impose their values or, or morals on others when those others are violating no one's rights, as in the Lawrence case, for example. Uh, after all, what were they doing that was violating the rights of anybody else? And we've got the same thing here in the, in the same-sex marriage cases. Whose rights are violated if two same-sex people want to marry? What business is that of others? If you use dignity as a constitutional principle, that would seem to allow courts to then balance it or balance rights against each other in order to preserve dignity. Is that about right? Yes, uh, but I'm going to need to flesh that out a little bit more. Uh, you asked about cl uh, clashing values uh, and rights. Uh, it turns out uh, that um, rights and values are very different moral notions. And I don't want to get too deeply here into the moral and epistemological weeds, but let me state the point very generally this way. The Declaration of Independence states that the purpose of government is to secure our rights, including the right to pursue happiness according to our own values. And even if when we do that, we may offend other people's values. The only thing is we've got to respect the rights of other people when we do pursue our values. Okay, there's the moral order. Now, the Constitution, for its part, basically establishes the institutions that secure our rights although most of that's done by the states, so the Constitution recognizes the power of the states to do that. Okay, now we've got the two orders put together, the Declaration setting forth the moral order and the Constitution setting forth the institutions that are designed to secure that order. But to give life to that order, uh, judges have to be clear about what rights we have and what goals or values beyond protecting rights we've authorized government pursue. Uh, otherwise, we'll have all kinds of conflicting rights. Well, it turns out, first of all, that if judges understand the background theory of natural rights correctly, there aren't many clashing rights to balance. Uh, there aren't many clashes to adjudicate, unless, of course, legislatures have created rights out of whole cloth. And in that case, of course, you're going to have clashes all over the place. But second, if you look at the Constitution carefully, you'll see that there aren't many goals or values that we've authorized government to pursue. 
Madison put it very plainly in Federalist 45. The powers of the federal government, and here I'm going to quote him, are, quote, few and defined. That doesn't give the government much to do, the federal government at least. And the police power of the states, as I mentioned earlier, is intended mainly to secure our rights. It's not a power to, for example, encourage procreation, as the opponents of same-sex marriage have argued, or to pursue the many other values that modern governments pursue today under that power. Values or goals like those are for individuals to pursue in their private capacities. That's what freedom is all about, after all. It's the right to pursue your own values, provided you don't violate the rights of others in the process. Now, obviously, I'm describing the world the Constitution envisions, not the world we live in today, especially after progressives gave us an endless list of public values to pursue. And much of that has been done from a misguided understanding of dignity to get back to our subject. The obvious question then is, uh, uh, so what? Uh, so what have progressives done with this uh, idea of dignity and uh, how has it been applied? Well, let me give you an example. Thousands come to mind, but one leaps to mind immediately. You remember the Life of Julia cartoon the Obama White House ran during the uh, 2012 election? Uh, it, that's a cartoon that traced the life of this fictional woman named Julia who lived her entire life from cradle to grave dependent on one government program after another. Presumably, the idea was that those programs enabled her to be free and independent and thus to live a life of dignity. Well, I ask you, where's the dignity in being forever dependent on government programs? And so if that idea of dignity creeps into our constitutional jurisprudence, especially as a right, I think you can see where it all comes to an end. If one person's dignity allows government to restrict another person's legitimate liberty, then we've got a clash not only of values but of rights, and courts would have to balance them, as you earlier uh, suggested. That's why dignity should remain, if anything, a side issue in adjudication, not a right to be secured by courts. If we go down that road, there's no clarity or dignity because there's no liberty. Roger Pallon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.